The Webby Awards. This podcast has been nominated for a Webby Award in Science and Education. Please, if you will, go to the Webby Awards and vote for the show. If you do, this show will defeat Neil deGrasse Tyson's show, Star Talk. And I think may the best microphone win. So if you would like to see me give a five-word speech thanking all of you and everyone who's ever been supportive of the show and helped make this possible, go to thewebbyawards.com. I think it's vote.webbyawards.com. Go to Science and Education, vote for You Are Not So Smart, and let Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, have his own show on television. He's already got plenty of things. (laughs) Please vote for You Are Not So Smart over at thewebbyawards.com. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 205. It is so good to see you. It is... uh, an incredible and immense pleasure to make your actual acquaintance. That's so funny to hear. <laughs> Hi. Hey. Uh, how are you? I am good. What about you? Well, you know, it's it's COVID times, but uh, things are thawing out everywhere. Uh, I'm fully vaccinated and going to restaurants and bars every once I'm in a while. I'm so jealous. I, I'm that crying. is the voice of Megan Phelps Roper, a former member of Westboro Baptist Church. If you've been following the show for a while, if you've been listening, you know that I've been writing a book about how minds change for a few years. And I am happy to say, I am overjoyed to tell you, my editor is editing that book right now. So in celebration of that, I thought I would share with you one of the most powerful interviews I conducted while researching the topic, a conversation with Megan Phelps Roper, who wrote a book about her experiences leaving the church titled Unfollow. I highly, highly, highly recommend you get that book and that you watch her TED Talk about her experiences. In case you didn't know, uh, Westboro is, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, an organization that tracks hate groups, quote, arguably the most obnoxious and rabid hate group in America. They carry signs with hate messages directed at LGBT people, Jewish people, and soldiers who have died in combat. They've been the focus of several documentaries, books, news series, and other attempts to make sense of their actions. And they've been parodied in a number of Hollywood movies. They've conducted thousands and thousands and thousands of pickets, and more than 500 of them, by their own count, have been at funerals. They also won their court case for free speech in the United States Supreme Court, and the court ruled eight to one in their favor that they could, as long as they were on public property, protest with signs that read things like, thank God for dead soldiers. 
So I wanted to talk to Megan. I wanted to ask her what was it that made her leave, considering so many others in the church have not. And here is that interview. <sighs> Let's take it all your just... time. No, I'm so excited. Oh, that's a good question. Um, man, so I'm, that's my daughter is number one. I should just start there. She's <laughs> a two and a half, the absolute best. I am obsessed. <laughs> um, it's just amazing. Like there's, there's that, I mean, and it's not, it's not just, of course, like the time that I spend with her. It's like, I, I was, I was prepared for parenting, like, cause it's not just it's relearning an entirely different way of thinking about children. Mm. Like I remember before in the years before I had her, like before I was like, I, I, I thought I wanted to have kids, but I like needed to this a long answer. <laughs> no, I, I um, like long answers. Um, I, I mean, there were obviously since I left the church, let me see if I can like frame this easy, more easily. Um, when, since I left the church, like my thinking about so many things has, has changed. Um, and it's shocking to me how easy so many of those changes were. So for instance, my thinking about gay people or Jewish people, um, all these people that we had targeted, these groups that we had targeted when I was at the church. Mm. Um, and because I, I, would, I would have these experiences um, and you know, recognize like, oh yeah, all these things we believed about them were just wrong. Um, it was very easy for me to switch those gears. And part of that, of course, was because at Westboro, we believed that we were loving people, right? So it's not like, I hated them and then I loved them. It's like, I thought I loved them. And then I realized like, okay, that's not really how you love people. This is a, this is a much better way. Um, and I can meet people where they are and it's not an evil thing, you know, all those things, whatever. Parenting is so different because I, <laughs> you know, all the years at Westboro, like the, the, the thinking about people, you know, that, that the, and children specifically, you know, it's, it's very authoritarian. It's very controlling. It's, you know, you want to like smash these emotions that are unacceptable. You want to, you know, it, it's that, that, that is the answer that, that, that the way through is to, is to suppress those emotions and those thoughts, you know, the way that my, my parents would put it, the way that my mom would put it is this, this verse that says, you know, we have to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, right? That, mm. That's the verse. Um, and like, so for years before I got pregnant, I was having, I was like reading parenting books and like trying to, hmm. cause like I would see children in public, like misbehaving. This is again, very long answer. I would see children please, in, in public, please go on. Please go on. like misbehaving or, you know, misbehaving, like acting out or whatever. And I would, I would feel this kind of shock that their parents weren't freaking out, um, but they weren't like. And, and of course I don't, I don't want to like, you know, we were, we were, um, we were, it's so funny. We were abused. We were spanked. Um, and it definitely was over the top and definitely veered into abuse at times. Um, but, and like not infrequently. And of course I, I knew that I was never going to, I didn't want to hit my daughter. I was never going to do that. Um, but the other parts of it, you know, the, that, it's amazing to me how these different strategies, you know, different ways of thinking about children and, 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 you know, affirming their emotions. Like it's amazing how much faster all of the negative things, the negative things, right. Um, go away. Like when you let them move through them and you're there to support them through those emotions rather than trying to like clamp down on it. Um, hmm. And it's, 
it's amazing. Like uh, having watched not just my parents, but my, my older brother, like the way that he would deal with his children and they're like, the harder he is pushing, the more they're resisting. And, and, and I think just making it so much more difficult for themselves and for the kids. Um, and, and it's just amazing to see the way that my daughter responds to these, like just and my family would probably have seen that as like coddling them or, or, you know, like that I'm doing something wrong by treating her this way, but holy hell, she is <laughs> so emotionally like intelligent and understanding. Like when she looks at her baby, like her little baby doll and, the, and her baby is crying and she says, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be upset. <laughs> like it's the, like, it makes me want to cry. Uh, I love this so much. It's, 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 um, I feel like there's almost a segue into something there, but, uh, like, um, the different paths to trying to, to dealing with resistance and stuff like that. I, something that, um, one of the questions, I mean, I, I don't mean to leap way ahead, but one of the things I really wanted to get insight from you about was this sense. And I've spoken to a lot of people who've left cults and conspiratorial communities, uh, also spent time with your brother, uh, Zach. Um, oh, wow. and, uh, you know, Zach told me about, um, being in an olive garden and, uh, someone being very kind to him who was gay and that, that, uh, his, he was astonished by his reaction to that was like you talked, like you mentioned, it was, um, he didn't have the immediate response to it that he expected to have, but that was, but if he had been still in the church, he thought he would have. And something I wanted to ask you about in that regard, because you just mentioned it, was um, the. It feels like there is a there's a barrier to, to changing the way you see things, to assimilating and accommodating, and all the things they talk about in psychology, uh, that goes away like, whew, <laughs> if uh, almost right. Uh, and I'm wondering if you felt that way, and if so, like, what is your insight into like? Why, why couldn't that have just been in any other, when, when you were still in the framework versus when you were outside the framework, what is it that went, what is it that was, that disappeared that was preventing you from beforehand seeing people in the way that you see them now? Community, right? So it's, it's, mm. I'm being, sur I'm surrounded by all of these people that I love and who love me, who show me that they love me and all of these very practical ways all of the time. And it's their love and their understanding, not just of, of you, but of the world, right? That, that is the air that you breathe. And so when you grow up in an environment like that, especially like Westboro, where it is extremely doctrinaire, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, we, we are thinking and talking about the Bible verses and all of the, all of the evidence to support our, our views all of the time. So we're reading the Bible every day. We're memorizing the verses every day. We're standing on the streets, talking to people, defending defending those beliefs every day. Um, and, and you, that it, there's that, that narrative, that story that you're told, you have an enormous, um, you have so many reasons to, to believe, right. You, you have all of these experiences that show you that this is right, that this is the way. Um, and, and so that, that there's a lot of inertia there. So I, from the time I was five years old, I was standing, I was standing on public sidewalks, um, being in a, put in a position to defend these beliefs. And so to do that, you really have to know them and to understand them and to be able to, in a moment, right? Because you're, the, 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 the protest, it's, it's a very, 
it could be a very chaotic environment. You know, people are coming at you and they're really angry and hostile. So you, you have to be very prepared, right. To answer those things. And that mm-hmm. was, that was also a, re- a requirement, you know, be ready to g- give an answer. Um, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So your mm-hmm. ability to defend those things is a reflection of your salvation. That's kind of how you, I mean, or that's how it feels, even if it, you know, doctrinally, that's maybe not, they probably wouldn't say that. Um, so, so all of those things, you know, kind of work together to, to, you know, to have this be like so front and center in your mind. And then, you know, when, so I did obviously have, you know, you use the, you, what did you say? Persuasion and epiphany. That's, that's the way that you phrase oh, it. I'll, 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 I'll clue you in. I, 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 so like I've been writing a book about this forever. You are, you are the final interview, by the way. Uh, and and oh, I, wanted, fancy. I wanted to talk to you years ago, but it was just, your life was very busy. Um, oh, dang. Did you message me? Did you send me a message before? I don't, I don't oh, remember. Oh yeah. Like 2016. I'm so sorry. Yeah. To give you some background, I went, I, I, after that, uh, I, I, I messaged you and then I also said, uh, I think I'm going to try to talk to your brother and you said, you know, be, you know, walk careful, be careful. Cause he, I'm fresh. so sorry. I, yeah. No, it's, it's so okay. funny. I, I literally have no memory. Of this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm sure Apology. you don't like, um, a lot of things have happened since then. And, uh, <laughs> But then I, I went. I went to. Uh, I flew out to Kansas. Um, oh, nice. I attended Valentine's Day services at Westboro. Um, nice. Um, and then I went to the uh, Rainbow House after that, and spent all day with them. Uh, nice. And then I met with Zach uh, a couple times, and we had coffee and talked all about the stuff. And um, I just sort of spent a, a, like a four day weekend out there. Um, nice. I can tell you, and I say this in the book. Uh, I, I was raised Southern Baptist, and when I attended services and sang the songs and just kind of hung out, um, for the most part, the thing that I was, I, I like everybody in the world, thought that Westboro Baptist Church was going to be this creepy log cabin wrapped in vines in the <laughs> middle of the woods at the end of a snaking yeah. trail, and that, yeah. uh, and that I would get there and people would be leering at me and everything, and that it would be just terrifying. And... Uh, and instead, I just knocked on the door. Uh, a young man in a pink shirt said, "Asked me if I had made an appointment, and I was, or had I, I had, I told him no. I had tried because I got on the website and nobody would answer me. And he just, uh, he put his head out the door and went, um, looked around to see if I had anybody around me. Instead, just, uh, we'll just agree not to shout, and you can come in. And he put me on on a guest pew, and I just waited. And then eventually, everybody came in. Some people shook my hands. Everybody was very nice. I was actually surprised that some people were just wearing like Under Armour shirts and stuff. Because uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, I had, a, you know, I I had this preconceived notion there was going to be robes and something. I just had this cult yeah. concept in my head. Yeah. Um, and then um, I was actually the thing that one of the things that really was weird to me was the uh, the entire sermon was already printed out, including yeah. some of the like. Um, things that would have seemed like uh, natural pauses and ums and ahs and jokes, like those were all, yeah. all included. Um, and so you just kind of could read along with the sermon. And then... Um, yeah, we, that's a we, little... That was such a weird thing when it changed. <laughs> it changed really? when Graham you know, was still alive. Like he, he just... Like I, I so wish that there... I don't, think, I don't think there's a video anywhere probably, just, just our own memories. But when Gramps was younger like so it was like 2007 I think is when that happened when he started like writing out everything before then it was like this incredibly dynamic like he just 
you know, I, nobody else at the church, nobody else is like this. Nobody has that ability to just like pull from all mm. of these different places. Like, so Gramps would be like preaching about one thing and he'd pull this verse, like find that verse. Like so, so people would be like, you know, rifling through their concordances, trying to find the verse that he was talking hmm. about. Um, it was just this, like, it was so amazing. And it wasn't until you just like, and now they do like right. Yeah. About, I, you know, I, that was new to me. And then, but then we sang songs and, um, I write in the book, like, uh, I remember going to look to a coffee shop afterward and try, trying to go through what it felt like. And the thing that bothered, the thing that, that, um, the, uh, the, the thing that made me feel the most ill at ease was how familiar it all was. Uh, it, that was the thing. I was like, I was raised in a church just like this. Uh, the only thing that seems different is they have, like, they have, they, they, they came, they have this thing that they do that is, that is a form of community outreach that is uh, different from what my church did, but everything else felt very similar. And that was unsettling to me in a strange way. I was like, Oh, I, I was in a framework like this. And like a lot of people that I still know. Um, yeah. And that and, was, it, that yeah. really shocked me. Westboro's really, they really see themselves as, as singular. Right. And that I absolutely did as well. I thought that we were just, and when I left like literally, and I write about this in my book, like we, we went to, I mean, and it happened even before this, but I write about it this like a month after I left I, in Deadwood, the first night I leave the, you know, B and B and I'm walking down the street and, and the bartender at the, you know, we sat down and ordered hot chocolate cause I, I didn't drink and we didn't. <laughs> um, so, and like the whole place is empty. It's like mid December uh, in Deadwood and the bartender had an, an upbringing, like very similar, um, I mean, just uh, different, you know, different in, the, in some of the particulars and the particular beliefs and the setup. And, and as you say, like, you know, what they didn't, they didn't, her family didn't protest or whatever, but it's that I believe that, you know, we have the truth and we have to like, you know, separate ourselves from other people. And, mm -hmm. but there's, there's so many parallels and so it's not just religion either. Like, and, and recognizing that these are just very human tendencies um, that really helped me, I think move forward because mm -hmm. it's like it wasn't like we were uniquely evil you know or that we were you know just just horrible people it's like we're just they were just human beings yeah. you know raised in this environment that made it seem like that there was no alternative mm -hmm. so, anyway sorry um uh so yeah the the what i was talking about assimilation and accommodation um in my book about how people change their minds i i spent the first few years doing that kind of stuff i, w I went as uh, i went and met for people who had left cults, I met people who were quote unquote deprogrammers, which I eventually became very um, suspicious of cult deprogramming. And have since uh, found that there's a lot of the literature is very um, negative about the whole Ooh, idea. Will you that, tell me? I'm, uh, I'm really oh, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, cult deprogramming became uh, a, it was a, in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of uh, alternative religions uh, started forming where people would, uh, um, young people who didn't like Vietnam and you know, young people who didn't like um, the, the mainstream culture and felt very opposed to their parents' values would just sort of, in that rebellious period of time, 18 to 24, uh, and before that sometimes, they would uh, go to college or they would get a job somewhere and they'd meet some like-minded people and then they would... Uh, uh, smoke some weed, listen to some music, find their way into a, a, a retreat somewhere, usually on a beach. And um, sometimes those groups would also find their way into um, small churches. 
some of those small churches uh, would end up being things like the Moonies or end up like the Children of God or um, and in the worst case is probably, you know, the um, Jim Jones's group. But those were, were sort of very, those were like very uh, much outliers to what was usually going on, which is just young people being young people exploring what they believed and not, and kind of like taking their protest sentiments and uh, since they were, they were, if they were raised very deeply religious, they were like, I would like to find a church that is more in line with my beliefs about and feelings and values and attitudes about the war or about um, uh, just counterculture concepts that were really becoming popular in the 60s. So basically just hippies is what it comes down to. And, and these yeah. hippie, hippies who wanted to be, have a spiritual life. And uh, parents would often feel like, who, parents who felt like they, de- they were really in, like those kids were still their kids that got deeply offended by the idea that they would re- reject their values, um, would had caught on to this concept of brainwashing. And that was because in the 1950s, uh, or, or, there was a, a, this sort of, uh, in the middle of the Red Scare, uh, this book came out about the uh, prisoners of war in uh, Korea who had supposedly been brainwashed. And the idea of brainwashing at that time was a Manchurian candidate kind of thing, where there was a secret way that you could talk to a person, and then they would uh, turn into a robot and be like, oh, and then you could tell them anything, and they would listen to your programming, and then you could close the programming like hypnosis and send them back. And there was this fear that the communists were doing this to our soldiers. And the reason that happened was because a few of those people did defect to... Um, uh, communist countries after that, but that was because they were hippies, <laughs> and right, right, right. Uh, and some of the, and, and then it, the actual thing that they were doing for those people were they were depriving them of sleep, depriving them of food, and then telling them you know if you'll re- if you'll say these things that we've written out, uh, we'll give you some food and a nap. And almost all the people who were supposedly brainwashed when they got back, they were like, yeah, I lied. Like you know, I was just trying not to to die. Right. So, but. The, the pop culture thing that happened was all this stuff came out in the in sort of uh, some mainstream, but a lot of alter, alternative mainstream stuff, like saying, oh, my God, there's this thing called brainwashing, and it's, it's like, uh, it's terrifying. Right. So what happened was when the 60s come along and people started going to these communes and uh, meditation retreats, um, there were, uh, there was this dude that came around um, his name was uh, Ted Patrick, and he was uh, uh, a community organizer in California. And two of his kids uh, were kind of doing that, and they were they were hanging out with Children of God. He infiltrated Children of God, and he spent like, like a weekend with them. And he came back, and he was like, "This is brainwashing, baby. This is exactly what they did to those people in Korea. They're turning them into robots. They're programming our kids like robots. We have to deprogram them." So he came up with this idea, and his all, he has no he had no training in psychology or therapy or anything, uh, what we do, we kidnap them, we put them in a room, we deprive them of food, we deprive them of sleep, we won't let oh, them leave, man. and we yell at them and uh, shove them on the bed and, and hold them down until they re- reject <laughs> what they do. So <laughs> This, okay. Okay. <laughs> this does go perfectly with the parenting. <laughs> okay. just, not that so, we ever started so the, to deprive the, the food and stuff like that, <laughs> but it's that it's that resistance thing, right? Uh, you know, it's like so, it's like oh, if I just make this, and my mom would actually if I just make this, maybe if I make this as miserable for you as it is for me, you'll stop <laughs> doing this. So the 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 weird the where that where that goes is like that got very famous because parents who were f- afraid of that 
started asking him to do that for the, to their kids. Um, oh, and other people started becoming like uh, acolytes in that idea. And so there were cult deprogrammers everywhere. And the thing is, though, I mean, people, like one of the people that they did this to, he just got a job in another city. He just moved away from home and he got a job as a chef and he was like, just like uh, enjoying his life and watching Saturday Night Live with his friends and getting high and learning um, meditation and becoming a Buddhist. And he was one, he was like, look, I'm not coming back for Thanksgiving. I've found a different way. And he already didn't like his mom and dad, like a lot of teenagers. And, and he, But this guy was already like in his 20s. They hired Ted Patrick like they roll up on this guy as he's walking home. They throw a rope around his neck. They yank him into a car. They drive him a hundred miles away. And for, um, he, he attempts to, uh, he escapes, they catch him again. And this goes back and forth until finally they keep him uh, under lock and key for 55 days. And, um, he does eventually go like, yes, I, I've been deprogrammed and they're all very happy about it. Um, but, uh, eventually another court, another court case where he's a witness, uh, Ted Pat, he tells the court like, no, like I was lying and these people are monsters. And, um, Ted Patrick eventually goes to jail for that. And so all, almost all the cult deprogrammers from that period of time, uh, spent time in jail because of kidnapping. And yeah. what turned, what eventually was born out of this fear of the counterculture, uh, became, uh, it had, it had been given some credit because, people who had left the Moonies usually praised them for the deprogramming, even if it was brutal because they didn't like being a Moonie anymore. And the, um, and but then when Jim Jones happened, that was it. Like cult deprogramming became this thing where if you wanted to believe in it, it was great. And if you didn't want to believe in it, you could see it as kidnapping, but it became this very weird phenomenon that we still think of today. And so the word brainwashing and the word deprogramming are still part of our, vernacular and the history of it is all muddled and weird and Ted Patrick's still alive. I interviewed him. Uh, he's in his nineties, but when I interviewed him, uh, he, all he wanted to talk to me about was, uh, he had seen a, a, a pilot have a freak out on jet blue and that, and this, this really happened in like 2016. A pilot had like a mental breakdown on the plane and the, uh, the other pilot, uh, he had to be subdued and the other, and the co-pilot landed the plane. He was like, did you see that in the news? I was like, I kind of remember it. He's like, that man was programmed. That man, was, that man had been programmed by Al-Qaeda. And I wrote a letter to the president and told him, I could deprogram this man. You need my services. And I took it to the FBI along with my interview in Playboy magazine and said, I'm the man that should do this. So he's doing this in his, in his 80s. And he's like, they never wrote back. And I was like, I don't understand. Like, I have the secret. So even now, he still believes he's, the, um, he's a, this guy. So I went through all this stuff. Uh, I went through a lot of that stuff. I also spent time with people in um, in California at the Leadership Lab, who they go door to door and knock on doors and talk to people. I I I, w I embedded myself with all these different groups, Westboro included, uh, and then I went into the science and found things like assimilation and accommodation and um, the elaboration likelihood model. And I, I'll send you links to all this stuff. It's it's, it's yeah, sure. these are all there's a there's actually a, a deep science in how how minds um, update their priors and then also how persuasion can and can. Um, encourage that, but it all comes down to this old this stuff from Piaget and assimilation and accommodation is assimilation is when you try to take, when you, when you are exposed to in a moment of uncertainty, when you're exposed to novel information that may be challenging to your preconceived notions, we tend to assimilate, which is we find a way to fit it into our existing model, whether or right. not it's, we interpret it as fitting into our model. Um, and accommodation is what happens when you, 
you just can't do that. It, eventually, either there's too many anomalies or yep. it's something that you can't make sense of with your current understanding. So you have to expand the 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 sort of the perimeter of your uh, yeah. model of reality to accommodate it. The way mm -hmm. I like to, we talked about kids. You've probably seen this uh, yourself. Um, if a kid sees an animal with four legs and a tail and some hair, you say, and they're like, they're pointing to it and you're like, dog. And a child is like, dog, got it. Things with four legs and a tail and fur are dogs. And then they see a horse and they're like, dog. Well, that's assimilation, right? They're like, it's novel information. It's not quite like what they had before, but they're trying to make it fit. Yeah. And then you'll say, no, 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 that's not a dog. That's, that's a horse. And at that moment is like, that's this sparkling becoming of a whole new version of reality because they have to learn that, oh no, there's a category of things and dogs are part of that category. And right. creating that level of abstraction to include the dog and yeah. the horse is an expansion yeah. of your model. And then we, we do this forever. We do this for our entire lives. But yeah. as you've experienced, and I, I don't mean to speak for you, but uh, like yeah. a person can be in a, in a model of reality that has got so much abstraction in it that you can assimilate anything like, like person can directly challenge your beliefs and you can go, well, I can look at this in a certain way where that's actually not disconfirmation. That's confirmation. Yeah. Um, and the, it, it can take something very, it has to take something, it takes something very special for a person in that place to accommodate. And this is why I sit at your feet now because <laughs> you are, you are an example, possibly the most well-known example in our, uh, time and in like the, uh, in this zeitgeist of a person who experienced this massive accommodation moment. And, um, so that's why I wanted to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, that, it's, it's so funny. Of course, that's that, that day, July 4, 2012, that will always be the, like, take me through it. I mean, um, yeah, let me, I, I know you've told this story about 16,000 times. Uh, feel free to, you know, whatever you're comfortable talking about it, but I would love to hear, um, the way you see it now, like what, what, take me through the story of your, um, leaving the church. Okay. I'm probably going to cry, but that's okay. Okay. I'm here. Uh, this is just, it, it's so funny because sometimes I can talk about it and it just doesn't, but this doesn't feel like one of those moments, you know? Oh, if, if you're not um, comfortable with it, that's totally okay. No, no, no. It's okay. Um, so it's, 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 it still kind of surprises me. It still kind of surprises me how, it was happening kind of little by little. And it's exactly that process that you were describing, like trying to take in this new information and make it fit with what I believed. And, and it was this process. And, and at the, at the time I remember thinking like that it took such a long time. And now I think a year and a half, is that really, <laughs> is that really all, all it took? Um, so, so there was just this series of events um, in the about a year and a half um, or two years before I left the church, before I had this moment. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to, um, yeah, take your how, time to, how, to how to say it succinctly, because like, it is a process. So, so the short version is I got on Twitter. That was the beginning. Um, I started meeting people. So this was in like kind of late, mid to late 2009. Um, and at first, Twitter was just like the picket line. It was this place where I would go and I would say these super provocative things, knowing that they were super provocative, but that that would get people's attention and I could preach to them, right? That was the whole goal was how do I preach this truth of God that is the only hope for humankind to, to these people? Um, and people responded in kind. People were angry and they were provoked. Um, but, but really quickly, um, the dynamics there changed. 
because one way that the that, that, that Twitter was different from the picket line was that um, I was talking to some of the same people, you know, and developing a rapport with people over time. So when you're standing on a picket line, you're out there for maybe a few hours at the very most. And then you never see these people again. You never have to see them again. The people on Twitter, you know, I was coming to to know them and to like them eventually. I was seeing how they interact, not just how they were on the picket line, you know, yelling and screaming and, you know, um, threatening, things like that. Um, Twitter gave us this space to kind of come to understand each other. Um, and so it was that knowing and understanding. And even though I would have, you know, denied being moved by that, I was in fact moved by that. I started to feel accountable to these people. I didn't want them to think badly of me. I, I could deal with, like, if you understand me and where I'm coming from and you don't like it, okay, I, I can deal with that. But if if I'm acting in a way that's making people believe things about me that are not true, um, then I don't want to do that. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to change the way I talk to people so that there is no misunderstanding, right? Um, so part of the way that looked is that I stopped using these, and this was partly just because of Twitter itself as a platform. You only had 140 characters and, you know, the casual insults that my family you know, would throw around, um, frequently, that was just part of how we spoke to outsiders. You know, you're not just talking about the Bible verses. You have to throw in like, have a salad if you're talking to somebody who seems overweight or something. Um, and I, I tended not to go quite that far, but, you know, just the, the stupid insults. Um, I, I actually found a um, an example of this when I was talking to Adrian Chen for the New Yorker profile. Like I had this stuck out in my mind, um, this email I was responding to for the church where I was, I'm getting really off track here. Okay, I'm going to try to, I'll try to no, read no, it. No, there's no track. Just, just but, but I said, I said in this email, I started it with um, like something like, hi, Scott, get a grip, you presumptuous toad, something like that. <laughs> That's not very good rapport like, building. That's no, not very good not rapport a, building, Megan. The- no, not, not at all. Um, but that was like right before I got on Twitter. And it amazes me how fast things started to shift um, after I got on Twitter. Um, and and, this, and again, part of this is the feedback loop, right? So I'm, I'm, it's not like, so on an email, I send this message and I don't know, maybe a few days later I get a response. You know, it's on Twitter. It's like instantaneous, right? Mm. It's, it feels like a conversation. And so I can see right away when something I say has has moved the conversation away from this, com- you know, from this discussion of these really important topics, the Bible, um, to these the playground squabbling, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I just started to become more disciplined and more judicious with my words and to think about, um, about who these people were that I was talking to. I started to care who they were and how I was affecting them is a short, is a short way of putting that, which that was never true before. Uh, my only job was to preach. And if they didn't mm-hmm. like it, screw them. You know, I was not responsible for their feelings. In fact, you know, the picket sign, God hates your feelings. Um, Hmm. Twitter made me care, you know? Um, And then there was another element where, you know, what these people on Twitter, these, these individuals who, you know, took my hostility and kind of used humor to, to kind of turn the volume down a little. um, 
I started doing that to people who came to my, to my Twitter. So people would like send me all these, you know, angry, you know, super provocative, like rape threats, death threats, things like that. And I would respond like with a wink and an emoji and, you know, Hmm. trying to turn the conversation, not just for fun, but like trying to turn it into a dialogue about something real. And it, again, it shocked me how powerful that was and how often it worked. So this is, this is the beginning mm-hmm. of, of how I started to change. Um, and then the church itself started to change. So uh, doctrines within the church started to change. And the way that that kind of first came was this, these elders. Essentially, at, when I was there, they were self-appointed. After my sister and I left, they had some kind of voting thing uh, and were confirmed. Um, but when I was there, it just appeared as, oh, we're the elders and we're going to start making all these rules that are definitely contradictory to all these other things that I, I'd spent my whole life learning. And, and I, I tried to resist that. I, I was asking questions and like, well, what about this first? I don't understand what's going on here. And, and the response, it was essentially like just to shut it down. Mm. Um, yeah, just, and so <clears throat> the combination, the short version is that over the course of that, that happened, that the elders took over, essentially, it was about a year and a half before I had this moment. Um, on July 4, 2012, I, you know, as I'm trying to wrestle with all of these things, I've, I, as, you, as you said, I've been trying to assimilate all of these things and to mm-hmm. make it all fit within this picture. The picture is that, you know, the Bible is the literal infallible word of God and Westboro um, is the only church on earth that, that we know of that that knows and understands and preaches that truth. And we are led by God. And so that is the, that is the narrative that I'm trying to fit everything into. And the things that aren't fitting are the contradictions first that come from Twitter um, these internal contradictions in our in the doctrine itself, and behavioral issues in the church where people are saying, "Okay, we believe this and we preach this, but we don't act this." Um, and the number of the number of questions just keeps growing and growing to the point where I'm standing with my sister. I'm, I'm we're we're painting opposite walls in um, a friend's basement, and it this music is playing in the background and it's this, it's very sad kind of somber and, and it just is so reflective of everything that I'm feeling and just this, this immense heaviness and like everything about it, you know, we're, we're in this dank, like dark basement Mm. and it's, again, it's, it's, I, I felt like I could hardly breathe and I'm trying to make it make sense and it's not making sense. So, and literally like mid stroke, it finally hits me like, oh my God, what if this isn't the place led by God himself? Hmm. What if we're just people? Like that's, that's the phrase. What if we're just people? Hmm. Like, and I, it was so shocking, right? For that to finally, that idea to finally form in my mind, it went against everything that I had spent my whole life believing and preaching like at the, at, at great cost, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so it's the, the cost that you have, you know, you know, going to public school and, you know, being an outcast, you know, standing out on, on these sidewalks and having all these people, they're so mad at you and 
but you know that it's the truth and you know that you have to do it, that it's their only hope. And so to, to take this thing that I had seen as so good and valuable and important and, and it's like, you know, holding some treasured gem in your hand and, and watching it all like turn to ashes in a moment. Like that's, that's the feeling that I had. Um, that, that, that this thing that was so, you know, we saw, we saw Westboro as literally like heaven on earth, right. That to be surrounded by all these people that, and, and, you know, part of the effect of being so separate, you know, emotionally, um, separate from the world is that like, yes, you can spurn and disdain everybody outside, but it makes these bonds within the group that much stronger, mm. kind of almost to make up for, you know, whatever else you might be missing. Like you have this very treasured thing and, and just like, it, it just seemed impossible, impossible that I could have been wrong for all of that time. Impossible to consider what our being wrong meant, mm. what it meant for all the people that we had spent all of those years attacking, what it meant for me to face up to that. Like how, how could I possibly live in the world if this was, if we were wrong? How could I lose? How could I lose these people? How can I walk away from my mother who was being so horribly mistreated? How can I leave her? And it, it just, to think about that, even to ponder it for a moment just felt like the, this enormous betrayal. It just felt like there was no that there was no hope, hmm. that there was no way out, that there was no way to fix it. And, and so literally like this comes to me as I'm, as I'm, as I'm, you know, mid stroke painting and I, and I, I just kind of freeze for a second. And, and my next move was to put the paintbrush down. Like I had to go and leave right that second, because if I was even thinking this, then that meant that I didn't belong here. And, and that, that I was some, horrible evil that I was, that I was Esau, right? That I was, I was the, I was the twin that was destined to go to hell for eternity. And the act of turning to put the paintbrush down brought me, uh, I saw my sister and she had been the only person in all of those months that I could talk to about the things that I was thinking, the, the, the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies and the just wrongness that I was seeing. And she was the only person who would say, you know, maybe, yeah, you're right. That doesn't make sense that, um, she wouldn't just say my, my other sister and the other people in the church would say things like, you know, just, just go talk to the elders. They'll set you straight. Like they, there just must be something that you're missing. Like we must not have all of the information, that kind of thing, just kind of outsourcing any, any critical thought, um, and, and I, I didn't believe it. I just felt, you know, they had repeatedly, you know, done all these things to lose my trust and that, and it's, it's to me, when I think about this sometimes, like, and just how in it I was, 
like how the fact that all of this happened at the same time, at the same time, I'm starting to kind of being given reason to trust people outside of the church at the same time, this massive, you know, distrust, like all these reasons to distrust the people in the church, you know, it like, would it have happened if, it, if all of that wasn't true at the same time? Mm. Um, but so I, I thought I can't leave in that, you know, back to the basement. I thought I can't leave without talking to my sister. And so I did the next day and I, I couldn't articulate, I couldn't say the words like, what if we left? Um, I, I, it just, it just felt like it would be too real to, to say that. I said, like, what if, what if we weren't here? And my sister, she was like, what do you mean? And I said, what if we were somewhere else? And we both, we both had this feeling of like, I don't want to be somewhere else. I don't want to, I, I don't want this. I don't want to have seen this. I don't want to have experienced this. I want, I wished that I could go back, you know, hmm. But I, I, I knew that I couldn't and that there was, there was no way forward <clears throat> except, you know, to try, one, to try to change things at the church, to try to convince them of the yeah. things that, and, and so we, we did try that. Um, but they're just, you know, as you know, in a group like that, when all of the momentum, it's like a juggernaut, like going in this one direction and it takes a lot for that to turn around. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I there were just too many things that I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I was not going to protest funerals anymore. I was not going to pray for bad things to happen to people anymore. I believed that those things were unscriptural and wrong. And there was no way for me to say those things or to live out, you know, I, I couldn't straddle this line between like only holding the signs that I believe while also all of this other stuff that I think is really wrong is also happening. And so, yeah, eventually you, there's just, there's no way to walk that line. Mm -hmm. First of all, um, thank you for sharing all that with me. Um, I can't imagine even all these years later, what it must feel like. Um, and also to, there are people that leave organizations and they tell their stories and they get emotional, but they aren't leaving their mom. You know, so I can't imagine what it's like to even, even now, um, so thank you for that. Um, I, um, <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead. No, I. Um, what were, uh, I'm wondering what were some of the things that were um, what were some of the changes that were taking place in the church that you found so um, troubling the the when the when the elders took over. Yeah. So <clears throat> mostly it had to do with, I guess I mean, maybe punishment is the way to put it. So you know all. All of my years at the church, there there was this thing that would happen where somebody would be like identified as a troublemaker of some mm -hmm. kind. Like this person is doing something that they shouldn't. They're acting in a way. They're talking to people in a way that they shouldn't. And so it would end up with these, you know, meetings where essentially everybody in the church comes together and just lays out this you know, this case against this person. And it's like, no matter what they, 
it's like, and this is the way my sister and I put it in those months before we left, like everything that looks bad is bad and everything that looks good is also bad. So if the action isn't wrong, then the intent is wrong. The Mm. heart is wrong. And I'm not saying that those are like absolutely possible things. Like people, you know, people are complicated and, and there's nothing, again, I'm not trying to say that, that it's, it's, but in a situation like that, you, everybody has so much incentive to, yeah, just to, to point the finger at somebody else mm. and to, and to, because then you're showing your solidarity with the group, right. To, to point out mm. things against this person. And, hmm. and so that, like, that had been a thing all, all my life. Um, and it was terrifying, right. It's terrifying to watch, right. Because you don't want it to happen to you. Mm. It also kind of ups your own willingness to go along with anything and everything because you, you trust, you trust the group. Mm-hmm. And you trust their judgment more than your own. Mm-hmm. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Mm-hmm. And and I, I so many times I would be in those meetings, and I, I remember I'm young, right? In the lineup of people at the church, like it was one of those things that I realized as a as a kid, like I these people are always going to be older than me. Like I'm never going to be in a position where where I, you know, am a leader. You know what I mean? Just mm. It's very hier- hierarchical. Like, in other words, I just, ha- all I, ha- I just have to follow this. Okay. Um, and I would sit in those meetings, like, and I'm not saying anything because I don't have anything to say. You know, they're, they're talking about this older person. They're, it, you know, this, the judgments against this older person. And I don't have anything to weigh in on. I'm just watching it and trying to understand what's happening. And I would think so often, like, I don't see what they're seeing. Like, they, I must be missing something. Mm. I must be wrong about this. The problem was it had never happened to somebody. Well, I think two things. It had never happened to somebody in my own household. And, and by the time that it did, I had already had these experiences on Twitter where, again, these individual wow. doctrines, like the inconsistency. So there was, I finally had, you know, for the first time in my life, a small sense of, trust in my own judgment more than the church. The idea that I could be right about something and that they mm. might be wrong about something, never, like I would never have put any faith in that idea until it was this logical contradiction. Mm. Um, yeah. Tell me about that. Uh, Cause the, I mean, of course, you know, it's impossible to, I'm not a sequestered juror here. I, I, I've, yes, yes, I've, yes. I've, read, I've read lots of stuff about you and uh, uh, <laughs> I know, but I, I, but I would like to hear about the, um, Sure. The there are two people on Twitter that you talk about a lot, um, yes. uh, David and uh, and the person that eventually became your husband. And the, the um, and uh, the the thing about the catching you, I mean, like I know a lot of people are opposed to fact based persuasion or, or to use to try to start with facts. And it's uh, often that they suggest in persuasion to try to get to the person's motivations instead, but. Um, there are these two signs you talk about quite a bit, uh, that were like vastly contradictory to what you were feeling in your heart and what you felt like was the expression of what, uh, your faith was telling you was the point of all this. If you could talk about that a little bit. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people 
I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a the therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, 
you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. Turn to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And we now continue our interview with Megan Phelps Roper. Yeah. Um, so the the first contradiction that, that came to me was from uh, this guy, David Abbottball, who ran a blog called Julicious. And he, you know, we... He says that he wasn't trying to persuade me. He says we were having these conversations, you know, in public so that people could see our ideas um, argued against Mm. and to help give other people the language to argue against these kinds of ideas. Mm. But, and I think that's true, but I also think, and he he said this, like he he did recognize my humanity that I really believed I was doing the right thing. And so the conversation that, I, that I'm about to tell you about actually took place over DM. So that didn't have the, okay. you know, the, the public, you know, view. It was just, you know, so he, we're, we're talking about these um, doctrines. I don't remember how it came up, but he specifically brought up my mom. So my mom had my oldest brother um, before she was married. And so this was something that was sometimes thrown in her face as a, oh, look, you're a sinner too. And we would always say, yeah, well, but the, the standard of God is not sinlessness. It's repentance. And so, you know, and she repented mm. of those sins. And so like, yeah, yes, you can throw her sin in her face, but that doesn't contradict anything that we're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, but yeah, you have this sign that says death penalty for, for gay people. And, and I said, yes, like that's, that's the standard, you know, in Leviticus. And if that standard, if it's good enough for God, then it's good enough for us. That was how we always thought about it. Um, and he said, yeah, but, uh, well, two things. One, didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? And our mm-hmm. response to that was always, yes, but we're not casting stones. We're standing on a public sidewalk preaching words, like we're not casting stones. And he goes, yeah, but you're advocating that the government cast stones. Mm. And and I was like, oh, man, yeah, we are. <laughs> like, it just, it <laughs> seems so stupid. It seems so stupid now. But like that, that like, it's like if you have you know, these answers and each one like seems, it seems like a good response. It seems like the right answer and the truth. But until somebody actually articulates something like that, you know, and then I'm like, oh my God, 
oh my God, it, that passage was talking about the government. Like that's that's the and the death penalty. Yeah, that was the point of the passage, mm. and I just was like so kind of set back on my heels is the best way I can put it. Just like, um, even though we're just, you know, sitting here, I'm just like curled up in a chair on Twitter. And, um, and, and then he kept going though. Cause like, I didn't respond immediately. I was just kind of sitting there like, Oh my God, like, Whoa, what, what? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And your mom, you know, that, that sin is another sin that, that is, um, worthy of the death penalty. And if she had been killed, you wouldn't exist. Like you, and it was that realization that not only is that verse, that Bible verse about, you know, casting stones, like specifically talking about the death penalty. Also, if my mom had been subject to that, then, you know, that's what is the point of repentance? You wouldn't have had the opportunity to repent and be forgiven and our family wouldn't exist. And that, that the realization like that mercy, right? That was, we didn't, we had a sign, one sign. It said, God is love, hate, mercy, and wrath, and with Bible verses. Um, but we never talked about mercy in the context of anyone but us, right? Mercy only applied to us. And the idea that we are, and especially combine this, you know, uh, gays are worthy of death sign with the, you know, sign saying that gay people can't repent. Like this goes directly against our mm -hmm. core doctrine. Like, what mm -hmm. are we doing? It was like at some point, it just became so important to show ourselves as distinct from other people. And that became the most important thing. So any value that outsiders espoused, we would we would push against it just mm -hmm. as a matter of principle, regardless of what the Bible actually said about it. Um, yeah. And so it's so like I just remember being at a total loss in this moment. So in the, in the absence, and I totally, that, that thing you said about like arguing based on logic and not, you know, emotion or motivation, you know, it, it people do disfavor that, but I, I, I think, I think, well, both. I don't know. Cause in a sense you, that's what really happened though. But I mean, I, I if I want to assimilate right here and make this fit. Yes, yes. Model, I mean, it, I, it is, it was emotional, cause, right? Cause he, he, he was saying friend. like, isn't your motivation this and how does the, how is this a, a example of that? And, and th that's where the contradiction was, which was b back here in the motivation space. Which so it seems it was similar in a way, maybe. Motivation. It's so funny. I've never thought about it in those terms. Can you say what you mean? I mean, like I always thought about it in terms of logic because you know Westboro was so there. My many my both my parents, many of my aunts and uncles are attorneys. They're extremely. Yeah. Um, analytical people and and our our doctrines like our our defense of those doctrines was so much based on um based on logic right like our our construction of these arguments from bible passages and so for david to say okay well you're you're going against this here and you're going against this here so yeah, what's it, going well, it's just it's about justification right so like uh, a lot of the literature in psychology when it comes to when we come up with reasons for what we think feel and believe the purpose of that is for the consumption of our peer group so that we seem just in our behavior and we're trustworthy to them and they'll keep us around and feed us and not ostracize us. So it's all about, can I justify my behavior? Can I justify my argument? Can I justify this? Uh, I'm thinking about we, maybe we should pursue a different goal or pursue that goal in a different way. And it's, so we all, almost all of our reasoning in psychology, they, they consider reasoning separate from reason. And it's kind of just a, it's a, it's just a word game uh, that got kind of messed up where we like, there's a philosophical idea of reason and logic, but there's a psychological idea of reasoning and motivation. And, 
and the two can sometimes get confused. But in reasoning, you're you're just coming up with reasons that other people find plausible, and we call that. And I can see one that would be like a lot of legal. Uh, it's like in the in the world of uh, of the of the justice system. I mean, it's all about can you justify what you did. So, you know, if somebody breaks in your home and you shoot them, like, okay, now why, why did you shoot that person? And then we have to say, right. well, it was justified. I thought they were trying to kill me. I'm like, okay, well, right. that's, that's different if you just shot them because they were uh, weird looking. Um, right. Or, right, right. So like the, we sort of have an, apparently we have an innate sense of this. And and I can see where like, if, um, if you're trying to convince somebody they're wrong or trying to convince somebody to leave or, or, or change up their faith or something based off of pure fact, uh, saying like, if somebody thinks the earth is flat and you're like, well, look at this and look at this and look at this, you know, that's one way of going about it. But, uh, they, in, they call it, uh, they call that topic rebuttal, uh, technique rebuttal on the other hand is some, some kind of form of the Socratic method where you say, all right, but, uh, are you justified in this conclusion and what are you using as justification for it? And it seems to me that this was a clever, and it may not have been intentional, but, uh, saying like, Okay, you're telling me your justification is, and you have all these tenets you're talking about, about you're trying to love the world and save the world from, from um, hell. And, um, and, and he's like saying, well, he's actually talking about your justifications seem to be uh, in conflict in some way, which means that one of these two justifications has got to be questioned. And then so, th- so just put you in that, that frame of mind of you're considering how, you pro- how, you're, how you're reaching your own conclusions. Uh, I don't know if that was the intent of it, but it feels like it's something in that world in some way. Yeah. I mean, so the specific, like the, the first thing, you know, so I, the second, the second part was uh, applying our own standard to my mom. Right. So mm. applying our, we're, you're holding yourself to this, you're holding everyone else to the standard. If you held yourself to the standard, you didn't recognize that the standard applied to you as well. In other words. Mm. Um, and like that, that's, that, that was the second part. The first part though, was you know we we had these we had these you know those those responses that that seemed to make sense they seemed and and so like I I don't and and it was the it was the conflict behind it like the direct conflict with the verse mm-hmm. um I guess I'm just trying to like and I, I'm 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 really trying to follow you here oh, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying I I'm I'm here to learn from you <laughs> uh, but the no but I I just I've always I thought about it in terms of like. A combination of both of those things, because I was not just so when people talk about you know emotional arguing or mm-hmm. right or 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 trying to you know just being nice. In other words, like oh, if you're just nice to people, then they'll <laughs> somehow come to agree with you. I don't know something like that. <laughs> like that seems to be the. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, uh, if they had just been nice to me, well, it would have been a little bit of cognitive dissonance, right? These people, uh-huh. I would have explained it away as oh, they're trying to seduce you away from the truth or whatever, mm-hmm. and I would have. I would have enjoyed their kindness, but I still would have not trusted them if if he hadn't like if he hadn't been considering the the positions that we had been and and the verses and the way that we um, the way that we justified them. If he um, if he hadn't found that part, I don't think yeah. I would have found. My, I don't think I could have found my way out of. Um, I think I would have found a way. Like in the absence of Twitter, I I do believe I would have found my way to just continue doing what I always done, which was any time there is, so when the elders took over, I would have just, you know, held on to that. Um, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and, and who can know it. So 
so therefore I need to, you know, subvert my understanding, subject that to the, to the, the ruling, the edicts of these, of these elders and just go along with it because mm-hmm. who am I to question it? Yeah. Without that. Um, yeah, I forget what we were talking about before. Yeah. <laughs> like where we were going. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I, it is super. This part is so fascinating because the um, Twitter is so often considered, all social media is considered the place where people get radicalized. It's the place where people well, become more vehement. It's the place where people just argue and there's nothing comes of it. And then you're this giant uh, example of like, well, <laughs> uh, maybe I, not. And you want uh, me to tell you my theory about that? Yeah, I do. <clears throat> so I, I think what's so funny is that like the way that you see you, you I'm sure you've read many articles as I have about people who are radicalized on on the internet and it actually kind of reminds me of what people did with me just going in the other direction right mm. it's that building of community of relationships and so often these are you know people who who for whatever reason find themselves on you know the fringes of of society, but even if they're not on the fringes, like they are persuaded by it's again, it's not just the arguments. I, I do believe it happens, you know, in concert, you know, when, when people are showing you, they're demonstrating their care for you. And especially, you know, as I was, I feeling like I was becoming alienated from my own community um, as they started to move in a direction or, or continue in a direction that I was coming to realize was, mm. um, was something that I believed was wrong. Um, David, who you, uh, who carefully, who like became friends with you and even despite your differences in the beginning, uh, like you protest, if I I know I'm speaking for you here, but I just wanted to mention that you you protested. I was protesting David. You you (laughs) physically protested his like place of worship, right? Well, so he, yeah, so he actually lives, uh, lives and lived, um, in Jerusalem. And so he, I came to protest the Julicious Festival, um, and <laughs> that's what and, it was his festival. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, well, yeah, but it, and his um, it's really funny because he he you know ran it with his um, our, our friend Rabbi Yona uh, Bookstein, um, and my sister was holding a sign that says "Your Rabbi is a whore," and David leaves the festival to come out there where this huge group. It was these these protests were insane. Um, it was in Long Beach, California, and a ton of people came out to counter protest and they were like wearing an Easter bunny costume and all kinds of, and they were like very like physically um, violent and, and like pushing people. And just, it was, it was really kind of a mm. crazy atmosphere. And I was actually really grateful for the fact that he came out there to stand next to me and like, it was like a buffer between me and these people who mm. were like, you know, coming after me. Um, and it was this very, like our, our vibe was like very similar to the way that it was, um, on Twitter, which is kind of like teasy and like challenging, but mm. also like genuinely like, like, Hey, how are you, how are you doing? Like, how are things going hmm. here? And things like that. And then the next time I met him, we were picketing, um, the Jewish, the, the general assembly of, of, uh, Jewish federations in new Orleans, same thing. Like as soon as he like gets to town, as soon as he, as soon as he gets in, he comes out and like, he tells me he's bringing me this, um, box of halva from this market in Jerusalem where he lives. And when he tells me he's bringing me a gift, like this is, as you mentioned about my family, like they're very, very polite, kind people. Mm-hmm. And like the idea that somebody's going to bring me a gift and I don't have a gift for him too. So like I go and, and buy like bring him one of my favorite bars of um, peppermint chocolate and like, you know, fancy chocolate. And he, I hand him the bar and when he hands me the box Co- of halva. Kosher? 
So he flips the bar over and starts teaching <laughs> me about the kosher symbols on the packaging. <laughs> that's so good. And I'm just like sitting there holding a God hates juice sign. Like, oh yeah, that's right. Like just learning about the different you know, standards of kosher. <laughs> this is extremely, extremely funny. But it didn't feel, like I said, like we we didn't believe we, we hated people. So there was nothing about this that felt weird to me. <laughs> like wow. it wasn't until, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, so the emotional part was important. Like that was real. Mm-hmm. But the logical part for me, like I, I would not have had the off-ramp. That's how, so this is really fascinating. So Graham Wood, um, I don't know if he, he wrote an article. I don't know if you know him. He writes for The Atlantic mm-hmm. and teaches at Yale. Um, he wrote an article um, and it was the cover story of the Atlantic in March of 2015. And it was, it was called what ISIS really wants. And I read this before I realized he had written it. And I was like, the whole time, like, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. He talks about this idea of, of an off ramp, like how, how you can you know, help people with these extreme beliefs. Like they don't just go from, you know, super extreme belief to, Oh, I don't believe in God at all or whatever. Right. Like not, not, not that that's the ultimate goal of any of this, but, but I'm just saying like, you don't make that kind of leap. No, without... that's, that's why I was like depro- deprogramming never seemed real to me because of that, but yeah, continue please. But yeah. So, so, so what is the off ramp? It's so for, for me, it's, it's exactly when I read that, I was like, Oh my God, that's exactly what I've been doing with Westboro. It's like, you're using, you're appealing to beliefs that they already have um, to say, even according to your own standards, these things are not right. Mm-hmm. And here are some other, here are different verses and different ways of looking at this. And it had led to, um, I had literally the month before I read this article, for the first time had gotten confirmation that it was actually doing something, right? Mm-hmm. So the month before I read this article, I wake up in the morning and I'm scrolling my Westboro Twitter account and I see that for the first time ever, they have publicly disavowed a picket sign. And it was that sign, um, uh, Fags Can't Repent. And they used the same verses that I had been talking about in messages I sent them on Twitter, in private letters, and in public interviews. So, so you had been reaching out to them. Yeah. And, and eventually yeah. they changed the sign? Yeah. And, and that was after they first doubled down for, for years, literally years it really completely blows my mind um, still. But I was like, I knew that they could be reached. I I had a friend tell me um, shortly after we left, like, you know, you might not be the one that can get reached them because they are so their narrative about you and how like their, 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 the need to have this barrier between you and them. It just might be too, too big of a barrier for you to ever get through. So you just should probably have this in mind. And I was like, no, <laughs> she was right. And it was important. And, and I'm glad that I did ha- you know, have that in mind. I'm glad that she did introduce that into my mind as a possibility. But it also seemed like, you know, if people were able to reach me um, using these things, showing me that they cared about me and also making these arguments, um, I should be able to reach them. So, so for the, the day that I left, I specifically mentioned those two signs, fags can't repent and fags are worthy of death. And forgive me, I used the original language because... Oh, yes, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know you know, but well, I just... just like, that's, it's, good for, it's, that's good for everybody, yes. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's like they, for months after that, they those like, so they my cousin changed her profile picture on Twitter to her holding those two signs, screaming into the camera. You know, Steve Drain, oh, yeah. one of the elders... Super double down. Yeah, makes a makes a post a photo of him making a snow angel holding those two signs. Like wow. it became this huge, like very important, like point for them to say, like we're not going to listen to you. We're not. Right. And then they eventually, like that's amazing. You're not going to change my mind. 
I'm going to change yeah. my mind. But then they so do they, change their own mind because you influence them to change their own mind. And that's incredible. That is incredible. I, uh, I mean, and even it, it always, <laughs> I always have to say like, it always seems like, uh, like it seems like a very small, um, a very low bar, right. To, to like acknowledge that other people can repent and then also not to, cause the, another big one, and this to my mind was even bigger, the not praying for people to die, not praying for bad things to happen to people and showing like from the Bible, these passages that, that say, you know, so Jesus, you know, saying, um, love your enemies, bless them that persecute you. And mm. then Paul saying specifically, so that says bless your enemies. It doesn't say don't curse them. But Paul says that. He says, bless and curse not, right? Mm. And so, like, again, just repeatedly bringing these things forward and then seeing seeing the fruit of that. So, like, they, they had um, for all, many years while I was there, they had this flyer that went out every Friday that listed all of the soldiers or, you know, police officers and, and things who had died. Um, that week and to say thank god for 15 dead soldiers we pray for 15,000 more about a year and a half after i left that second line um was gone and it was yeah Um, absolutely shocking and so heartening the fact that they changed the those signs isn't just that they changed the signs they now know that the signs can change so not only did did you not only was some you not only they learned they might these might not be a good idea they learned that they might not have some good ideas which is yes. the crack that lets the light in. That's yeah, same. That that was that was me, you know. And I, and I I sometimes I wonder like how many I actually had this um realization about a little over a year ago and a few months ago I finally sent it to my family cuz I was like what am I like how many of these things does it take for somebody to eventually get to the place where I got to, right? Uh, yeah, I um, think it very it varies. It's nuanced. For sure. Everyone's different. You had for sure. some of the things you had and I'm, I'm, I'm do apologize for speaking for you, but I, and no, yeah, please, what it sounds <laughs> like to me is like you, you know, you had some things happening inside and outside, yes. but you also, there's, there's some genetic things about you. You, you were, you're nuanced yeah. in your own way. You've got yeah. some natural curiosities and, and you're open-minded in a way that might be different. So there's all these nuanced things. There's yes. millions of them and they, yeah. so the, the accumulation of all of them is that different people have different amounts a different threshold for how much it takes for them to right. go hmm but right. I, it feels like what you may agree with me on this i feel this very strongly at this point no one's unreachable it's yeah. just there's a th- people's thresholds vary is what yep. it comes down to and sometimes that's Absolutely. um modulated or mitigate or uh, titrated or whatever the word you want to use for by how much motivation they have to hold on to it and sometimes that motivation is very base like this makes me money or you know yes, yes. sometimes it's very very primal because yeah. we're social primates sometimes the motivation is yeah. this is my family <laughs> i mean like are yeah. this is these are the group of people that keep me going or keep me alive yeah 100 um, and i think yeah. too like having alternatives right i think it, this is something it just it's people don't i don't think people seem not to understand this at least on social media right it's like you can try to shame people out of their bad beliefs whatever however you want to define that for each individual person you can try to shame them, but we know from psychology, all these, all the reasons that doesn't work, right? Why that tends to push people who are on the other side, even deeper into mm-hmm. it. That's what happened with me as well, because shame is when you, you know, this was, uh, uh, this, I was talking to an anthropologist several years ago and she, the way that she defined shame, you know, she was d- distinguishing it from guilt and she defined it as, uh, it's the, it's the feeling that you have violated the norms of your community, right? Mm-hmm. So if, when people who are outside of your community that you have demonized, right? 
are, are angry at you, that feels good, right? And that's affirmation of your beliefs. You want to be demonized by these people that you believe are evil. So you can try to shame people and that people, that seems to be an extremely popular thing. But also let's say for a second that, so the person is far enough along that they can be shamed, right? Um, but if you don't give them an out, right? If you just say, oh, you're just evil and that's just, you don't deserve to be part of society. Like where do they go from there, right? we have to be willing to say like, okay, there's a, and people did that for me too. You know, like that, I, I, I didn't believe them really, but there was a part of me that hoped, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I, and, and, you know, there was no, like the alternative is, you know, I got my beloved family here. And I think m- many, maybe more people are like, are like that. Um, people at the church who didn't have the experience that I had on Twitter, for instance, and it, like actually firsthand experienced really positive things from outsiders. So I had that to, to kind of hold on to as a, as a little small bit of hope um, that maybe a lot of people at the church don't. But if we don't give people an out to say like, yes, you can change. Yes, there is hope for you in the world. No, we are not going to hold this against you for the rest of your life. You know, if, uh, you know, people need that. A lot of people need that, mm-hmm. I think. To, you, to I love that you ended change. up, uh, this person that you were uh, protesting and who was uh, talking to you so much, like you ended up, you know, making dinner with them and uh, and hang out with the family. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's, it's clear. It's just astonishing. Anyone who I've ever shared your Ted talk with has always responded back to me. Like, well, I didn't expect to cry today. Like every time. <laughs> and you're so sober in the, in the talk. And you just, by saying, this is what happened. There's, you cannot uh, protect your humanity from connecting to it and going, Oh my God. Oh, I cannot, this is, this is yeah. it. Um, and yeah, to and, that, and to think that point, about those people. I mean, when I, I think about those people, I think about Rabbi Yona and his family. Like I, I arrived, it was kind of late at night. Um, my flight was late and it was, I was so tired. And I, these are people who had like the last time they had seen me, I'd been holding a God hates Jews sign, standing next to a, your rabbi as a horse sign talking about this rabbi. I walk directly into their, like, there's no entryway. It's just like right into the like dining room where they're like the Shabbat tables, you know, sitting right there and everybody's sitting around and they're all like working late on, you know, trying to get ready for the festival that's in a few days and everybody's exhausted. I walk in and everybody's like kind of frozen and they're, <laughs> they're watching. I was actually not supposed to stay with them. I was supposed to stay at some volunteer on the other side of town and they just, took a chance, right? They, they took pity on me. <laughs> like I didn't ask to stay. I did not, like, I wasn't trying to, like, I understood that I was, a, uh, you know, and they just were like, she can stay. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is that? Like, that is such an amazing kindness. And I don't just mean an- that, like just the willingness to talk about it all and to be understanding and empathetic and to understand where I was coming from and what it meant for me to be there. And like, yes, I understood for them too, right? Like they had every reason not to trust me. And, and that is just unreal to me that I was, I would never have expected that when I left. Um, Oh my God. I I want to get to one thing before we have to part ways. And that is, um, you very elegantly, uh, broke this down into four tenets for if you would like to take what I what happened with me and turn it into something that maybe you would like to use or think about when it comes to talking to other people, uh, whether it's on the internet or it's your family or whatever, um, 
I'd like to go through those if you don't mind. Um, and maybe your thoughts, how they've evolved, uh, with them. Um, uh, so I'm just, I will just cede the floor to that if you, if you want to <laughs> go through them, uh, or I could prompt you with them one at a time, whatever you feel sure. like. No, yeah, I, yeah, I can, I can talk about it. Um, okay. It's really funny. It's like I, I, when I originally wrote that TED talk, it did not include these four points. And I, I want to say I would not have included them if the, you know, the TED curators I was working with didn't say like, you know, how can we avoid the mistakes? Oh, yeah. like, what are, what are the lessons here? Like I needed permission, right. To share, like having spent all these years at Westboro telling other people how to live and what to do. Like I was extremely, mm. I, I, I have a lot of, um, I, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't try to hold myself out as like, and, and the thing that I did with the talk is I was just sharing what people had done for me. These are like things that, that I purloined essentially from, from these really um, wonderful people. Yeah. Um, so this is not, this is what was done to me and okay. that was really functional. I just wanted, just wanted to know that. I, that's, um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that's always how it is too. Even when I'm in my world yes. you, know, you start yeah. you describe how things work and they're like well what's the prescriptive part of this i'm like oh well right. like, okay let me tell you how to do stuff i guess but, but right, right, that, right, I, yes. I was hoping you'd figure it out but okay. yes right right exactly exactly <laughs> um yeah so the the four steps that i broke it down into for the talk the first is um don't assume bad intent which i think is such a difficult thing um that's the hardest part i think it's it's so easy we, it's natural for us when we see people acting in ways that we believe are are wrong um, wrongheaded in in whatever way, to believe that it comes from a negative place, that they're trying to do the wrong thing, they're intending to do the wrong thing, and not that they are somehow led astray by some experience or belief that has brought them to this place um, where they're doing this thing that you don't don't agree with. So don't assume bad intent. If you can when, feel yourself doing that intentionally, like step back and and assume that the very best of this person, that they're really trying as hard as they can mm -hmm. and then go from there. Um, or at least not intending to be evil. <laughs> like, yeah. So the, that's the, like there's a group of scientists that uh, of all things discovered how the, why people see the dress as uh, black and blue versus yellow and gold. Uh, and they, they told me, you know, based off a person's experiences with with lighting conditions leading up to that moment they will disambiguate that image into one or the other and they have no control over that uh yes. it's just the experiences they've had as a person that actually determine why that what they see and they can't help but see things differently and they were like this is also true for values and attitudes and beliefs and so you yes. should afford people when you said that i thought about them like afford people the they're, the fact that it's a brain in a meat suit uh, yes. operating <laughs> operating a bone mech and it's, yes. it's, and it's trying its best to make sense of the world. And this is what it's doing right now. And that person right. is not choosing to be the way they are. It's happening. Yes. And I just feel that very strongly about it. don't assume bad intent. It's just, that's how they're making sense of the world. Absolutely. And, and it's so, when if you're able to do that, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I mean, we're kind of jumping outside sure, of our four sure. points here, but, but it's the like question of how do I, cause so this is, this person is the sum of their biology and their experiences. Mm -hmm. How do I, and it's manifesting in this way. How do I add something to this experience to change like the way that it manifests, right? Is there something that I can express to this person in a certain way that will help them recognize that there is something outside of their understanding that can and should change those experiences, right? So how can I add to the like the bubbling cauldron of this person's, who this person is, right? 
like, cause it's, they're, they're living, right. It's, it's still possible. They are not, that's the other thing I think that gets people so off track is that they, they see the way that people are right now and they don't, they are, we're unable to step outside of it for a second and, and recognize that this is a person on a journey. Mm. They are not now who they will always be forever, mm. right? That there is a potential for change and that you can affect, you help affect that change. Um, you, maybe you will add something that will change their minds. Maybe you won't in this moment. Who knows what, what you know, what, what that little, maybe whatever seed that you plant might blossom down the road away. Um, you don't know, but it's that, hopelessness, right? It's the despair that we have for other people, I think, that stops so many people from ever trying or, you know, to act in this way, right? That is so good. That is so good. I mean, like if you, if you love tequila and you have a bad night with some tequila, you may never drink tequila again. That tequila was just sitting there waiting for you one day. And, uh, you, so like, so we're constantly updating. We're all, I I love this idea that we're on this journey and I mean, you could get into a car wreck or, a plane crash or a natural disaster that will fundamentally affect how the kind of person you're going to be afterward. You yeah. could also be a, a force in someone's life that will affect how they live their life after meeting you. And there's no yeah. reason to assume that's not a possibility for all of us. Absolutely. And that's why it's so funny. So one of the, um, uh, so I, the epigraph of my book is this line from the great Gatsby that says, reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. And I feel like <laughs> that wow. is that, right? Like that Good is both like Gerald, baby. I know it's like <laughs> seeing the person on the journey. That is grace, wow. right? That is the concept of grace. Like I learned it from the Bible originally, but this, this vision, this ability to see other people. Um, yeah. In this way, it's just, it completely, it's life-changing, you know, and it, and it is so Man, I came from a place where we had the, you know, the world is doomed.com. The world is doomed on a picket sign. And it's a bleak way to live, man. I just want to put that out there. It is a bleak way to live. It is this, it's, it's, um, and I'm not saying like you have to be a Pollyanna or whatever. Like you don't have to act like everything is going to be great eventually or whatever, but like the recognition that it can change and that, Mm -hmm. and that life is not static. Um, and that people are not static. Um, it's like, I think that's, that's realistic. Like a, it's the biggest one. It's the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's one. No, not two. <laughs> <laughs> like specific strategies. Like how do you engage with people? Like once you, maybe once you've decided to do it, like how, what can hey, you Before do? we go to two, yeah. uh, here's a sure. question I've always wanted to ask. I don't know why I didn't ask this before. Uh, sure. And I know this is a stupid, dumb question, <laughs> but like in, in like 30 seconds, could you explain to me what is the pipeline for creating a sign at Westboro? Like, like, who comes up with it? Who decides that's good? And then, you know what I mean? Like, yes, yes. Okay. So 30 seconds. Um, somebody has an idea, they send it out to the whole group. Um, if it looks like something that's, you know, viable, that, that makes sense, that would be useful, um, that we don't already have a sign for, um, you know, if, if somebody says, Oh, we already have this other sign. This basically says the same thing. I'm like, Oh yeah, I forgot we had that sign. And then we go There's on. No, like, spreadsheet. <laughs> you don't have like a database. Yeah. There, no, there is a spreadsheet. Yeah, that's a spreadsheet. what I wanted to hear. Oh, that, makes me, that, that makes me so happy. There's a, there's a, there's there's a, a spreadsheet. Side spreadsheet. And, and now it's got ones with, um, uh, retired signs on it. I think. Wow. So. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. So exciting. So okay. exciting. Okay. okay. All, right, all right. All right. Tenet two is to ask questions. Tell me why that's so important. Um, for a couple of reasons. First, it's, it signals to the other person that they're being heard. Right. Mm. And that's what they, they you, you want, you want to understand that somebody isn't just dismissing you out of hand. Right. Mm. If they are curious about where you're coming from, and that's the other, that's the other piece of it. Right. If somebody is curious about where you're coming from, if they're really 
trying to understand where you are and where you've come from. Um, that helps address, it helps you address what they're actually thinking and feeling rather than whatever the idea that you have of them is, you know, and especially when it's somebody, somebody that has a reputation for whatever reason. So I had a West, as, as you know, you, you described earlier, your, your expectations about Westboro and the kinds of people that you thought they were going to be. Um, and then you arrived and you recognize like, whoa, this actually isn't what I expected it was going to be. And so now you're in this mode of like, okay, you're, you're learning, right? You're, you're, you're trying to assimilate. You're trying to, you're reframing. I don't want to use that. I don't use the wrong word here. You're trying to reframe your background, like all these things that you believed about them and into with the reality that you're experiencing. So when mm-hmm. you ask questions, it helps you understand where somebody's coming from. So you can actually address where they're actually coming from and not what, um, whatever preconceived notion or narrative that you have. Um, but also this, that signal to them that they're being heard. I think that's really important too, because then, so, so I had this experience on, on Twitter where, you know, I would, um, people would be asking me questions um, and, and in great detail, like they clearly wanted to really get to what we actually believed. And then there comes this natural break in the conversation where I've exhausted and I've said everything that I was, you know, that I felt like I needed to say, and then I, I pause. And because this is a person who just listened to me talk for a long time or write, you know, um, for a long time. And, and I've gotten through their questions. I've come to know a little bit about them and their background. Mm-hmm. I want to know, like, so the natural break is, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so then it, it, it's that, it's that idea. Um, and I would have talked about this in the Ted talk if there had been time, but there wasn't. But it's one of those ideas that I learned about and, you know, I became kind of obsessed with psychology uh, after I left. Like, what kept me there? How did all this work? But the, the idea was um, complementary behavior and non-complementary behavior, right? So we're, the idea is, you know, we're wired to respond in kind. Um, and when people act outside of that, like, it, it is... Um, it, one, it's difficult to do, right? Non-complementary behavior is difficult because if somebody's coming at you with hostility and anger, like it's your tendency is going to be to be defensive and and you know to to respond in kind. And it can be very difficult to take a deep breath, calm down, step back, respond intentionally. Um, and wow, I've gotten off track here, but no, anyway, no, no, um, no, but makes, it's, it's asking questions, great. right? So it's that curiosity from when, when you experience curiosity from one side, it maybe tends to make you feel more curious about the other person in return um, and more willing to listen, right? Because that's that's the goal, right? You're, it's not just to understand, it's it's to have the conversation. Um, and then, so the, the third point was to stay calm, which <laughs> as I noted in my TED talk, this is extremely, it's, a, it's, it's an extremely simple step, but also very difficult to execute when you're talking about anything that means anything to either party. Yeah, don't um, insult. I mean, but you know, the, the deeper level to that I felt like is something like, it keeps you out of us versus them thinking if you refuse to get hostile or if you start to feel hostile, you step away. Yeah. Um, this uh, is where humor comes in so, so well. And my husband, yeah. the man who became my husband was so good at this. Um, yes. Yeah, so when, whenever things would start to kind of go off track and like he's, he is wired to be an extremely calm person. So that was, he has that going for him. Um, 
<laughs> but, and, and he just doesn't like that kind of conflict. And he obviously didn't want me to be upset. Um, but like, as I would get like worked up, um, yeah, he just like crack a joke or something. And then it kind of like reminds you like, okay, yeah, we're just two people having a conversation. It feels sometimes like the world is going to end. Like if, if, if we can't agree on this thing, but actually that's not quite true. Like we can go on existing. It will be fine. Um, so, anyway. so perfect. Because, um, I've spoken to people who left like, uh, 9-11 truther communities, um, right. just conspiratorial communities. Uh, who, where the stakes f- would seem like they were much lower, but they felt the exact same thing of like, it is at some point, it goes from I'm thinking this might be true to I'm in a group and I'm in QAnon or I'm in uh, yeah. the truthers or I'm in the flat earthers. And once there's a, once there's an S at the end of it, you know, we're now we have, now we're bound by group psychology, which is a, com- yes. which it used to, I was just being bound by confirmation bias and all these yes. other all these other things that mess with the way we see the world. I was just, yeah. basically I was just bound by the laws of assimilation and accommodation. But then right. I meet somebody else who's bound in the same way and we're like, hey, you agree with me? And then all of a sudden I now am in a group and now group psychology exerts its influence over me and that's way yeah. harder to deal with. And they, yeah. they all, uh, anyone who's ever left a group like that told me like they experienced an excommunication. Like the, that's the, yeah. I think you mentioned this in another interview. Uh, what was it a uh, disfellowship, right? Like the, yeah. you, they didn't yeah. just, you, you can't just walk away from the flat earth. Like, Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I because, don't think I agree with this anymore. Can we still be friends? Yeah. Because what happens is all of them get together and go, you're a heretic. And you know, yeah. for you to leave based off of just going like, well, I disagree with it makes them, they have to do Defend. It's a threat to them. They yeah. have to. Otherwise, it makes it look like they're fools, right? So, yeah, if right. You, so you have to be the fool. And right. I've seen some really terrible behavior directed at people who were not in a religious organization. They were just yeah. in a um, you know an epistemic framework that that happened to do to it. They left, and they were treated yeah. the way a person is treated if they leave a religious organization. Uh, yeah. I feel like the staying calm part of this helps keep you from um, getting into that. Uh, social primate, uh, ooh, this might end up getting me ostracized feeling because and that, yeah. that's where the anger is coming from, right? Don't lock yeah. me into this position. And it's, I don't right. know, there's something there. I feel like there's something there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. Because like the, the it, it does feel like a, a, a physical threat, right? The, 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 um, epistemological threat, if you will, like it is real, right? If, if, if you are wrong about this, you have dedicated, you know, in my case, my whole life, right? My everybody in my community, my whole existence, my whole understanding of the world, like all of those things are at risk. And so maybe on obviously depending on what the issue is and depending on who the person is and what groups they're part of, like maybe it won't be to that degree, but to that same degree. But if it's still a threat, right? If for 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 some essential part of your world do you to be called into question. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's so funny to me because I, I I think about this sometimes because like from, from both sides here, right? Because on this, on the part of the the speaker who is trying to convince someone, right? Um, yeah, I think so much about how we should talk to each other, right? The, the emphasis is on like, how do you talk to somebody in order to effectively reach them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes it has to be as a listener as well, right? Because 
for what I, I think part of, I think part of this is, of course, that's all you can control is your own responses. You can't control how the other people act. Mm-hmm. And so my, my, my comments are to whoever will listen. Right. <laughs> and so it, but in the part where you're listening, right. And somebody's attacking your ideas, like, well, don't you have the, like, can't you act out? Can't you, you know, respond in that, in that protective way or whatever. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you can for sure. Um, but if, if you're, if you're going to hold on to, if that's the most important thing, if the most important thing is protecting your ideas, right. And not, not being able to withstand the kind of scrutiny that you are imposed or attempting to oppose on somebody else's side, I'm getting a little off track here again, but there's no track. Don't worry. Again, I'm sorry, but like, we can talk about macaroni and cheese recipes if we have to, I don't (laughs) mind getting off track. (laughs) I got a Martha Stewart one. (laughs) Email that to me immediately, please. Thank you. Okay. Well, along with a picture of my daughter, oh my gosh, I have this hilarious picture of my daughter. I could, talk, I really could talk about macaroni and cheese. Anyway, um, love, forget this. We're now in a. Ma- this is now the macaroni and cheese hour. Uh, I can't believe I haven't thought of that as a podcast idea until now. That would be so good. Uh, oh my gosh! But I mean, yeah, it, it, it all. I, I guess the stay calm part of it really is just it's it's both in in your the way that you, you're talking to the other person, but also in the way that you're listening, like you can recognize, you can step outside of yourself and recognize that sometimes you will feel attacked. And maybe the person really is, maybe they're full of ad hominem attacks and, and, you know, attacking you in ways that are like, it can be extremely emotional when somebody is attacking some, some core part of who you feel you are. Yeah. Cause um, the, the dangers are so enormous. Like it's, it, it cannot be understated that when we feel like we might get ostracized, you're, 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 you're evoking one of the most yeah. primal fears we have. I mean, it is akin to being, you know, attacked by a bear. It's yeah. like, you're talking about your very survival might be at stake. At least that's what your body feels. Yes, absolutely. And so being able to, this is what's, I mean, amazing about being human is the ability to feel those things and still be able to move through it. Like to, to think, like to recognize like this, this, <laughs> this was about to give you a really fun, uh, like, so I'm, I tend to be a v- extremely like rational person. So in the sense that not that I don't feel feelings, of course I do very much so, but that so often, like if I'm feeling something and I, I, and I recognize that, oh, this is a very self-serving position I've taken here or, or this doesn't make sense. Like mm. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling something that that's not logical. That's not supported by the evidence. Like for the most part, I can like turn on a dime and be like, oh, okay, well, I'm just not going to feel that anymore, (laughs) which is very helpful. It's very, very Can one learn this skill? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I think you can. I think think there are books I think there are therapies for for it. it. That is also what therapy is, period. Yes, absolutely. Like at heart, it's helping you like, like you're, you have a tendency to parse things in a certain way, but like, can you like Mm -hmm. recognize that there are things outside of that? I was going to say, so one, one thing that's really, um, Again, for me, it's like very biological. So like I had, I had trouble with this after my daughter was born. Like there's there's obviously these cascades of hormones and stuff. That's like, um, but I also occasionally, I mean, let's just stick with that birth childbirth example, actually, because that that just seems like such a, like I, I, it was very, it was a lot more difficult for me to do that. Like, but, but I, I do think it's, I do think it's a skill and I do think that it can be practiced, but I'm just trying to say like, I do understand, Um, I do understand like how. How that feels, but anyway, um, I did. What about the? What <laughs> I lost about, my no, 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 there's the, again no trade. Look, I, 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 
Listen, if you promise to send me a macaroni and cheese recipe, I will also send you one. I have one that's very, very good. I will do good. it. I have. Uh, I, that's what I want. That's what I want to come as, <laughs> come out from this. Uh, you have to bake it in the oven, but it's great. Um, oh yeah, same here. Okay. It's so oh, good. oh, if these turn out being the same recipe, oh that's my it. god, I'm walking into the hilarious. desert for six weeks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the last, your last tenet is make the argument. Now, what I will tell oh, you yeah, that sorry. this one, this one. Uh, I, people that I have watched your your TED talk uh, who work in like things like street epistemology and other the other these uh, sort of formal so- Socratic method on steroids things, this is right. the one where they get the most like mm, I'm a little worried about this one. So if, I'd like to hear right. what you mean by that. So I just mean there has to be an alternative, right? So you can you can if you're arguing against something that somebody believes, right? If you're if you're having a conversation and you want them to question it. Um, you can, and I'm not saying that some people won't just respond to the questions. Like, so for instance, like if you, um, if you are asking questions and you ask enough questions or ask them in a way that it helps the other person eventually on their own come to some alternative. Um, I think some people can do that. Some people can respond to that. I think that for me, like the, the Westboro's doctrines were so deeply ingrained and they made so much sense. Everything in my life, all of my experiences had shown me was you know in support of of those beliefs at least as, as at least as I my mind was framing them, um, and it wasn't until you know later that that I was able to look back and be like oh actually I had had all these other experiences that had dis- that would have been disconfirming if I had been able to think of them in any other context mm. or with any other framing. Um, so so I would say sometimes even asking the questions is can be offering a different frame. So I've seen some street epistemology stuff. Um, where you're asking somebody and the question itself, my, my math teachers, I had, I had a couple of math teachers who were really good at this. They're asking these questions in a way that, that leads you to a different way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. And that, so I'm saying it is possible, but I think also for some people, um, and, and especially, like I said, people like me, like extremely grounded, which is really funny, grounded in evidence, at least as I understood it, um, until until they were able to make these arguments that showed me that my like internal my um my view of things was internally inconsistent and i do think internal i want to add this too really fast um i do think internal inconsistency is is so often the beginning of people's ability to see outside of paradigms like Westboro because they can't they can't accept outside views of things just on their own. Like they've, they've been taught to reject those. So they, they reject them out of hand. And that's what I did. It wasn't until I, I could see that Westboro itself wasn't even consistent with itself that opened that's me really to interesting. outside information. So that, and this is what happened. I talked about this in my book with my friends who run the B&B in Deadwood, who ran the B&B in Deadwood, um, Dustin and Laura. Like it was these, you know, standards that were applied inconsistently and they can be the dumbest things are, you know, a seemingly these, these extremely small, seemingly very petty things. Um, but it's not the thing itself, right? It's not the, it's not the, this is it. I feel you getting to the, to the, the, at epiphanous moment. Go ahead, go ahead for me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not the rule itself. It's the fact that this, this rule that is supposed to be coming from this divine unquestionable authority, um, is being applied in a way that is very human, and very, very fallible. It's the inconsistency. Um, it be, it, the 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 raw concrete thing that's inconsistent. Not as important as the inconsistency that you're identifying within the framework that you're using to make sense of everything. 
Exactly. Right. It's the recognition that it is ultimately a human system. That's so, that's, you know, there's so, another thing that, that that's yeah. so, that this makes me think about like uh, all the stuff that I used to write about and that like people, the, the 2000s are full of books about like uh, predictably irrational and, and uh, thinking fast and slow right. and all sorts of things. There's a lot yeah. of pop psychology about how irrational people can be. Um, but almost all the studies into that were people being taught, there were subjects were isolated and alone and asked to look at things and reason through them and they you know they'd mess up they'd use a thing called the cognitive reflection task and there's this thing in there like i have a i had to pull this up to remember how it's worded but it's uh like if it takes five if you get a i've done this as a thing in in the crowd uh, as a, on the stage and you get an audience of people and you say uh here's a, here's a puzzle if it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets and so the what happens is you uh I ask everybody, anybody here feels very confident they have the answer and only like one or two hands will go up. Um, so what usually happens in the cognitive reflection task is about 90% of people get the, get the answer wrong because your intuitive response is pretty poor. And this is sort of the basis of the thinking fast and slow thing, right? But, right. you know, and then like the actual answer is, you know, five minutes because you have to, it, it, every machine's making one a minute. It, 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 and you ask, what you do is you ask somebody in the, in the crowd to who's raised their hand, could you please explain your reasoning? And then they will make an argument for why they have the right answer. And, um, what you'll then do is I'll say how, who here agrees with that? And then every hand goes up. So you went from two people having the answer to everybody having the answer. And the power of it was just that person's arguing seemed reasonable to everybody else. And it's a good right. example of like, if they were, if we were alone, we'd all be, it would be this whole room. If we were alone by ourselves in little pods and we couldn't talk to each other, we'd all be wrong about this. 90% of us, but mm-hmm. just by allowing, uh, somebody to, who had the answer to speak up and right. then argue their case in front of everybody else, uh, we all switch from everybody being wrong to everybody being right. And I feel that when that part in your tenants, I'm like, yeah present the argument. There's nothing wrong with that part of it, to me at least. Yeah. And, and again, I think it has so much to do with with how you do it too, right? Like it's, it's you can, obviously there are, you can think of a bazillion ways right away <laughs> that would be extremely uh, ineffective, right? If you do it arrogantly, if you act like the other person's an idiot for not already knowing this, but that, that wasn't how, that wasn't how I was talked to. Mm. And, and, and that, because obviously like I didn't see myself as some idiot cult member or whatever like no. we, we 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 see it we we know we obviously each of us we're, we all know our own experiences we know why we believe what we believe and wh- where we've come from but even if we're not like consciously thinking about it in every moment so when somebody treats us that way like it's it obviously but it's that the recognition that that in and um, it comes with the other the other points right it's the it's clear that the other person doesn't assume that we're a monster. Mm. It's clear by, from the asking questions that they are curious about who I am and, and why I think the way that I do. And, and, and then by their, by their, their calmness, right. The way that they are expressing themselves, it invites me to hear them. It doesn't demand it. Right. And it doesn't demand my submission to their view of things. Right. I love that what you're saying here doesn't necessarily require a lot of change to the platforms that we engage other people on these days. It doesn't, I mean, certainly you can make this easier on Facebook and Twitter and wherever else people meet. You can make this sort of engagement easier to accomplish, but it doesn't, you also could just engage in this kind of behavior right now on the platforms as is. 
Yeah. And uh, that's a real yeah, gift. I've, You've given that to me as a, as a real gift. I'm not, I'm not, I feel so, um, I, I think I felt the first twinge of It's optimism. empowering, right? Uh, you, this is something I feel like you've given to a lot of people who've been exposed to your story. You've entered, you've like dropped into our collective consciousness, a, a optimism. And uh, I feel that still to this day. Uh, I was so excited to talk to you because of that. And I just, I don't want to, I want to thank you very much for doing what you've done. Uh, you could have just lived your life, uh, but you, you like, you're changing the world. Uh, you've changed me. You've changed lots of people and it continues to, to, to cascade. Uh, it, it's, it's incredible. And I just want to thank you for that. Um, thank you so much. It, it's, I used to think when I first left and we my sister and I were first kind of asked to talk about it, that like, oh, what's the point of this? Is this just some like, I don't know, appeasing people's curiosity about the church or whatever? And and I, it has been enormously transformative for me too, to really think through in a whole lot of different contexts. So, you know, when talking to, you know, school children about bullying or law enforcement organizations about, you know, de-radicalization and counterterrorism and things like that, like the idea, it, it has been so powerful for me to feel like I could, that it was possible to redeem these experiences that I think resulted in a lot of harm to a lot of people and to try to turn them into something good and valuable for people. And I I don't know who I would have become if I, if there hadn't been a way to do that, if people haven't, hadn't given me, mm. right. The, the ability to do that, to let me grow and evolve and, and become, become who I am. So I'm, I'm, I'm super, super grateful too. I don't know what to say. Uh, how am I, how <laughs> am I supposed to do the rest of my day after that? I, 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 uh, I'm so sorry. I, I, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I, you know, I wish I don't, I, 2016, I was just thinking like I was writing, I was writing my book and it was, uh, that, that was the beginning and it was really emotional. Um, so I totally, um, uh, I totally get where I was, but also like, this is so great and so fun and so, so great to hear all of your stuff. I want to like anything that you want to yeah, send me um, about things to read. I would uh, love to. I've got to, I have one little meeting to do. And as soon as that's yeah. over, I will, yeah, send yeah, you, no, no rush. I will send you a giant link of uh, bullet points and a, and, and a macaroni and cheese recipe. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So great. Yes. You do that. And then I will also send you, yes, this oh, is wow. my daughter oh, that making looks, that macaroni and no, cheese. That's, at like five, that's the real challenge of your life. Five right in there. the morning. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, do you have an awesome. iPhone, by the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The live photo of it is, I'll try to send the live photo because it's so, like, sure, she's here, like, let me she's put my, uh, mid stir and she's like looking off to the side. <laughs> on, let me put this in the chat. Uh, I'll, I'll stay in touch and I'll let you know how, how it pans out. And this is yes, so good. Please do. Please oh do. Thank you. Um, thank you. All right. So great. Okay. It's so good to finally. <laughs> okay. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. This music you're listening to right now, that's Banjo Apocalypse. I almost always in the show at Banjo Apocalypse. They have a new album out. You can find them on Bandcamp. Just Google Banjo Apocalypse. You'll find them. Uh, the opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And 
For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For, for links to everything we've ever talked about, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. You can follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We're also on Facebook slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Megan Phelps Roper's book is Unfollow. And if you would like to support this one-person operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but the higher amounts get you posters, T-shirts, sign books, and other stuff also, vote for the show in the Webby Awards. Yes, that's happening right now. Just vote. Go to the Webby Awards, go to the website, vote for the show. All right, back in two weeks with a fresh new episode.